What is up, y'all? Kevin Kuhn here from Athlete Factors. This is the Athlete Factors podcast. My guest today is Dr. Andrew Fry. How are you today? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this and uh, dropping some knowledge on uh, on everybody who's watching and listening today. So um, you are a professor uh, at the at Kansas University. Um, tell us a little bit of, uh, about all the stuff that you do there, if you will? Well, I've been here now for 13 years. And before that, I spent 13 years at the University of Memphis. Uh, came here in 2007. And when I first came, I, I came as a department chair and did a term as that. And then I stepped back into just a professor's role and, um, and back into the lab. And during my time here, we've had uh, an opportunity to interact uh, very nicely with various parts of uh, our athletic department, and which uh, is, has become a, a strong focus of what we do. And um, in recent years, we've uh, developed uh, a portion of our lab called the Jayhawk Athletic Performance Lab, which mm -hmm. is focused on uh, sport performance. So um, health, fitness, uh, youth, aging, so forth, those are good topics, but uh, the focus of the, this part of our lab is um, how do we optimize sport performance? So mm -hmm. um, that has been fun. Uh, we interact with uh, local high schools, individual athletes, and certainly uh, some of the coaches and teams uh, here at the University of Kansas. We're not part of the athletic department, so that's good and bad. It gives us a lot of autonomy. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, there's no coach or team or anyone that's required to interact with us. And uh, it has, uh, for a number of years, complemented well with other parts of my research where I've had uh, one fork of my research has been uh, at the molecular and cellular level as well as endocrine. Um, mm -hmm. And then we have the performance uh, side of things and they complement each other. But uh, we've, I'm moving more and more towards the performance side because uh, it, it's easy to get spread out a little bit too thin. For sure. That's awesome. Yeah, there's, there's not too many programs that actually have that, uh, that, let's say, foot in the trench, even though, um, I mean, you can, you can look at kinesiology programs, exercise physiology programs um, all over, and, and, you know, you can get a degree – that, that has an emphasis in strength and conditioning and in athletic performance, but there's rarely uh, a program that actually has that emphasis or, or even a place to do research specifically on that, like, like your performance lab. So that's, that's pretty unique. That's pretty cool stuff. You know, you bring up an, an interesting point and um, it, it really resonates uh, for me because there there are many programs that have sport in their name. And for example, our department is a good example. We're the Department of Health, Sport, and Exercise Sciences. And there's a lot of programs that say we do sports medicine, sports science, mm -hmm. uh, sport performance. And you have to kind of look closely. Okay, so what exactly do they mean? Because um, you, is it really focused on optimizing performances in sport mm. or is it for general health and fitness which is uh what probably most people do mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, if you ever get a chance to hear there's several individuals that give really great talks on this so one of them is dr mike stone one is dr uh, bill sands who worked at the olympic training center for many years and 
uh, and there's others as well, but where they really differentiate, um, okay, what exactly are we talking about and what's the difference? Because exercise science is not identical to sports science. And mm -hmm. they, there's a lot of overlap, but there is a difference. And, and uh, I think in some circles that's underappreciated. Yeah, after, after finishing up uh, my master's at Baylor, um, I went and worked with a professional running club in Indianapolis. And uh, while I was there, I was like, all right, I, I got to go, go back to school. I just don't know enough yet. I got I to gotta get my PhD. And my number one choice was, uh, was at ETSU with, with the Stones. And uh, I was actually accepted, but there was – some funding issues and I didn't, didn't get to do that, but yeah, the stones are, they're legit when it comes to actually, uh, focusing that aspect of, of education on performance, on the actual sport science and actual sport performance. So that's, if, if you or any of your listeners get a, get a chance to in December, they always have a, uh, a conference. And it's not a huge conference. If you go, you can meet anyone you want um, and interact with anyone you want and, and pick their brains and whatever. But it is uh, very focused and it's a it's, it's a fun. It's one of my favorite uh, conferences to go to. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'll have to make a note of that and try to get out there once uh, once traveling and conferences are back. Up yes. And running. <laughs> So uh, the reason that, that uh, we're having this conversation today is really uh, because uh, a friend of mine and former student of yours, Mandy uh, Para, said, Kevin, you've got to talk to this guy about um, – really about how to improve the quality of research and – and improve people's skill at, at reading and understanding research. So um, we'll kind of get into that a little bit deeper. But before we do, can you tell us a little bit about uh, just your personal background, your academic background, your athletic background? You mentioned a little bit of, of uh, the academic side a little bit. But if you'll uh, just dig into all of those a little bit more, that would be great. Well, um my the sport that's my first passion uh over the years although i'm, I'm not involved with it anymore is wrestling so um uh in, in high school i loved track um i wasn't very good but we had so much fun uh with track i, I was fortunate to have a great coach that really uh made what could easily be an just a bunch of individuals out there all doing our own thing uh there, there was a lot of team uh cohesion and unity and support even between the throwers and the distance runners and the sprinters. And I mean, uh, um, so that was fun, but, uh, once high school was done, that was, that was the end of my career there, but wrestling was, uh, was a passion of mine. So I, I was able to wrestle in college and a little bit afterwards. And, um, when I graduated from college also, I was fortunate enough. I, it was a great example of, you know, where you do your internship and ended up being my, my first job. And it was working at a um, what was back then called a health club, but it was a private commercial fitness center. And I managed it for a few years and then I purchased it. And so I was, uh, um, you know, an entrepreneur, uh, uh, um, small business owner. Um, it was before the term personal training was even invented. Um, 
it was uh, during the time when aerobic aerobicize aerobic dance was big and one of my biggest uh, blunders from a business side is I, I started an aerobic dance program and rented a, a big hall for that and it was going like gangbusters mm-hmm. and I decided you know I'm really into the strength training this just doesn't pull my phone <laughs> and so I kind of folded it and it was it was, it was not how much thought went into it and you know and I, later I'm like that was that was a s- stupid business mistake <laughs> but uh, but um you know, my education, you know, I, I did my undergraduate in physical education at Nebraska Wesleyan, and I did uh, my master's at uh, University of Nebraska and my PhD at, at uh, Penn State. Mm-hmm. But um, and, and that, those educational experiences were fantastic. But uh, working in private industry um, where your paycheck depends on interacting with clients and providing a service. And we really focused on serious lifters. We sponsored powerlifting teams and weightlifting teams and mm-hmm. put on bodybuilding competitions. We put on wrestling tournaments. We had, um, you know, so it was that kind of a clientele. And um, you learn so much because you can read about it in a book. But let's put a program together that's going to peak you for, um, you know, a competition. Uh, okay, now that's where the rubber meets the road. And, you know, like we were talking about earlier when we were talking about track, um, when it comes to the conference uh, championship, uh, I better have put all the pieces of my training program together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the track is a great example of that where, um, yeah, people understand what periodization is and how to bring a person to a peak and, and, um, um, and does it always work the way you want it? No, obviously not, but, but working in, uh, uh, working in that setting was huge. And, mm. uh, you, you can't read or, you know, you can't just read about it. And um, and then when I, uh, I sold my health club and, and I went back to school and at the same time uh, I was working at the national headquarters for the NSCA. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was right when they were really going through a tremendous growth uh, uh, during that time. This was uh, mid to late 80s. And um, that was one of the most fun jobs I ever had because uh, I was kind of a jack of all trades there and uh, but I got to meet people that uh, one was uh, the person I ended up doing my Ph.D. with, uh, Bill Kramer. And mm-hmm. uh, and so I ended up being his first doctoral student. But um, going through working with him, doing a two year postdoc at Ohio University with Bob Starin, who uh, uh, was an excellent muscle physiologist. And uh, even though he worked at a at a medical school and a physical therapy school, um, he understood resistance exercise and studied what's going on at the molecular and cellular level. Mm. And, um, and so that was invaluable too. So it's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, it wasn't a big grand plan, but it was, it, it worked out well where each, uh, each step kind of took me to uh, where I needed to be. And, and so after that, I went to university of Memphis. That's where I met my wife, who's uh, Mary, a sports psychologist. Mm. And, uh, and we've been off to the races ever since. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Bill Kramer. That's for those in the know in the industry. That's like, uh, that's like royalty basically. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, he, you know, he's, a, um, you know, he gave me some advice. Uh, I guess I don't share this with anyone, but it's not a secret or anything. Uh, several years before I went to study with him, I met him and he was not at university of Connecticut at the time he was working with the U S army. 
but he, he knew I was looking at programs and he said, um, well, for sure, find someone that will take you under their wing. And he said, cause there's a lot of places you can go, mm-hmm. but find somebody that will take you under their wing. And he wasn't like recruiting me cause he didn't have a program, mm-hmm. but, uh, I think it was about a year and a half later, he did have a program. Mm-hmm. And, um, so then I, I had not, um, found a, a good fit and, and I'd say that that was my experience. Uh, very demanding, very high energy, mm-hmm. um, which is, which is very challenging. But but I think that that's part of the that's part of the process and uh, um, very challenging intellectually too. And um, mm-hmm. but you go back and it's like yeah, that, it, he still takes care of his. He, he's an old coach. In fact, um, I'll back up a little bit. My senior year in college, uh, he was coach at Carroll University in Wisconsin and uh we were at the same tournament and mm. we didn't realize that for a long time and later we compared notes and it's like yeah I was there and I didn't compete against this guy mm. and which would have been interesting because uh, he had a pretty <laughs> good, he had a pretty good wrestler at the uh, same weight class so probably just as well that we didn't uh, knock heads but uh, <laughs> yeah we crossed paths years before so that's awesome yeah you never know when when those uh overlapping timelines occur like yeah. it's that's funny it's it's a small world at the end of the day so awesome well that gives us uh, some nice context for um for kind of where we'll go to next in the conversation so um as i mentioned previously uh my friend mandy says you you've got a really solid handle of of pointing out issues with uh research methods or, or design or, you know, ways to, to make things, uh, set things up so that the, the answer that you get is actually the answer to the question that you think you're asking when it comes to research. So, um, with all that being said, can you give us, uh, just like the, what's, what's the basic goal? What's the reason behind controlling the research method? Like, um, there's, there's so much that gets published, let's say by, uh, mainstream media. Like it, it, every few years we get this shift in, you know, like, like eggs, for example, there was this, this study that was published in, I don't know, New York times or wall street journal or something like that saying, um, you know, eggs are just as bad as smoking cigarettes, you know, and it's based off this review or who knows, who knows, because nobody takes the time to actually look into that. So, um, when it, when it comes to things like that, like how, how can the average strength coach or sport coach or, um, or just lay person, how can we understand the research method better? Well, you know, that, that's a great question. And, and you know, we, you can write a book on it. In fact, there are books on it. And, and, and I'll, I'll throw out some thoughts. Some of these um, are things I've seen and observed uh, uh, or experienced. Uh, lots of times it's mistakes or errors I've made or been involved with. Um, and some of it's my opinion, you know, and I'll try to uh, identify or, you know, be forthcoming if it's just, a, you know, my opinion where it's not necessarily have data or anything on it mm-hmm. but uh, well you know we talked about this and, and this will resonate with anyone who's been in uh, uh, 
like a grad level research design class. Um, what is the research question? Mm-hmm. So someone says, I want to do a study on um, how um, this training program in the weight room is going to enhance my uh, my 3K steeplechase performance. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Uh, so I'm going to, you know, the question is, uh, uh, maybe they come to you and say, hey, I, I want to study steeplechasers. Okay. What, what about them? You know, mm. well, I don't know. We'll, we'll, hmm, let's see. You know, it's like, what, well, what is your question? And cause there, there could be a billion of them, uh, all of which could be very good, but what is the question that you're asking? And, um, is it theory based? You mm. know, so I think, uh, maybe if we did, uh, you know, use an example I threw out there. Uh, a certain type of training in the weight room might be beneficial for um, for uh, the steeplechase. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, what's that based on? Well, there there is some research out there that maybe can get is related. OK, so there there's something to support this. I'm not just making a guess. Um, you know, it's not just a blind shooting in the dark kind of thing, but it, but it's theory based. And uh, quite often I'll see people that will. And this happens a lot with grad students. Uh, um, an example from my experience was uh, I had a student that said, I want to study lactate. Well, I knew where they were coming from because we had just bought a lactate analyzer. They wanted to turn it on and run it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, wh- what about lactate? Well, I don't know, but I want to run some samples through that, <laughs> that analyzer. It's like, well, there's a lot of good stuff that we could do. Let's back up a little bit just because you have a technology or just because you have access to some data. Uh, or a certain population, it's like, okay, but what, what is the question that you're trying to answer? So um, on one hand, that sounds very simple, but um, uh, lots of good research should start there. Now, on the flip side, in the world of sport, uh, I'm going to say something that flies in the face of that, because sometimes maybe, um, say, you invite me to come work with your track team, and I say, okay, so uh, you've got all their training logs, You've got their performances, uh, maybe you're, you have their weight room programs or what, anything else. You have your, their injury histories. You have nutritional records. I don't know. You, get, you have all kinds of info. Mm-hmm. And someone comes in and says, well, let's do some data mining or let's look at what do we see here? Is there anything that's of interest? And so it's sort of a fishing expedition sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that can, that's a little bit controversial because uh, one school of thought is, you need to register your study and this is it. And these are your stats and these are your variables and do not veer from it. Mm-hmm. And there's a good argument for that. On the other hand, in the world of sport, sometimes, and not just sport, uh, a lot of discoveries are made. Oh, I wasn't looking for that. Look what we found. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, I think sports is a good example where sometimes, uh, what do we see out here? Is there a pattern? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's statistical tools you can use legitimately to see um is there some helpful information maybe not maybe mm-hmm. it's not helpful at all okay but uh the classic model is you, you do have a research question and you're going to try to i was going to say answer it you very seldom come up with the answer you come mm-hmm. up with more questions but you chip away at it mm-hmm. yeah that i think that whole idea for for most lay people is even for strength coaches, personal trainers, what have you, it can be really, really either discouraging or confusing because from, 
from one perspective, it's like, well, research proves things. Conduct research. But, um, you know, like in, in grad school, that was kind of a huge shock for me was understanding like, no, it's, it's not really proving anything. It, it's providing evidence for something, but there's no definitive proof one way or the other that, you know, this will do this. There's just evidence that you can, you can mount a case for. It's, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like a court case, right? Like sometimes there's actual proof and then sometimes there's just evidence. And then, so you've got to, you know, figure out the difference between the two and, and. Yeah. And I, I think, um, maybe to put it in perspective, you know, you're, you're quite often people will look at, say, say in the pharmaceutical industry, mm-hmm. I'm coming up with a new medicine. Well, now we're talking about health and fitness and maybe uh, life and death situations. I better be extremely confident that this medicine is going to do what we think it will. Mm-hmm. And so the statistical analyses are tight. And how confident do you want to be? I want to be so confident uh, in, in many cases. And so, um, so that dictates controlling the study. That dictates um, how confident are you on 99% or, or higher confident let's go to the sports setting so let's say you're the head football coach somewhere and you know coaches do this all the time it's saturday big game day i've got my my game plan here i've scouted my opponents i know what kind of defense they like to run it's third down and long and what are and quite often they'll say okay given this setting uh how confident does that coach need to be to call that one play he doesn't need to be 90. In fact, they're never going to be 99% confident. Mm-hmm. I'm going to guess if they're 60% confident, I'm on that play for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, how forgiving and how exact um, does it need to be? Well, it depends on what your what your analysis is and what your, your purpose is. And, um, and so uh, a lot of people uh, kind of lose track of it. They want precise, precise. And, and yes, Lots of times you, you do need it so that you have accurate data. In the sports world, sometimes you don't have the the always have that luxury. Kind of depends what your your question is. For sure. So how how can errors in controlling research uh, result in uh, incorrect conclusions, incorrect applications, um, or just what you think you're getting? when it comes to a result is not actually what, what, what's actually taking place. Well, there's a couple, a couple things, you know, there's a lot of things that can contribute to that. Uh, misinterpreting or misunderstanding research. And um, very seldom is the result, and you alluded to this, very seldom is the result of research black and white. Yes. This works. No, it doesn't. Yes, I take this supplement and I will come in first. <laughs> but, you know, it's not that simple. Um, and so uh, uh, sort of like uh, you were telling me earlier, you're very interested in in uh, looking at uh, movement deficiencies and, contra- you know, contributions to injuries and so forth. Well, mm-hmm. you know, what contributes to an injury? Well, yeah, if I 
fell in a hole and broke my leg, I can tell you that hole was the problem. But <laughs> in sports, that's not typically what, what happens. Mm-hmm. And, uh, or, I mean, I guess it can be, but um, um, it's much more complex than that. Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying to find the thing or the test or the thing that, yep, this is it. Um, and sometimes it, it might be right, but uh, it's so multifactorial. But um, one thing I tell my students, when you look at sport-related research, well, research in general, but if it's dealing with exercise or training is, and I tell my students, you may have a lot to learn in the physiology side, you know, endocrine, uh, biomechanics. Uh, you may have a lot to learn in some of these other sciences. But one thing you should know inside and out is exercise and training and programming. So look at what what was the training that was done or the type of a test that was used. Um, but so much of the time people will look at, uh, um, I want to compare this kind of training with this kind of training, whether it's a training periodization versus non-periodization or, or block versus linear or uh, free weights versus machines or isokinetic or high velocity, low velocity, high volume, low, so forth. I'll come up with a program over here and I'll come up with a program over here and we'll see what the stats say. Oh, this one came out ahead. Well, go back and take a look at the training program because you you can and you should go back and see, well, was that even a good training program that was put together? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, one group came out ahead of the other the way the study was designed. But is are you comparing the right program? Mm-hmm. And Plus, as you know, you could spend a whole session uh, on just the training programs and how it varies. Well, there's literally a million ways to put it together. And you're picking one over here and one over here. Mm-hmm. OK. And you're saying this is representative. OK. But um, look at the training program and decide, is this even a good program? And it's easy to get in the literature and see, well, we did three sets of 10 leg extension. So that, that applies to all resistance exercise? Well, <laughs> probably not. Uh, is that appropriate for that study? Yes, but can I extrapolate that to everything else? So, I mean, put your, put your, uh, your thinking cap on because you know exercise. And mm-hmm. it's just as if, uh, if you had a client come up to you and said, I'd like you to start training me. It's like, fine, what have you been doing? Bring me your training log, show me what you've done, and mm-hmm. you, you can look at it and make some judgments, say, Okay, um, might be a problem here because I mean that's what that's what we train our students to do, and that's what people in our profession should know. So, um, and that's where you know I go back to where I was saying earlier when I've you know I've worked with uh, college and high school and junior high and and youth uh, leagues. I've uh, you know coached people at national level, national competitions, and so forth. Um, that is extremely helpful because you're in the trenches. You, you, you've done it. Everyone thinks they can coach. Everybody thinks they can coach. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, you find that uh, it's another thing to actually do it. Just like everyone thinks they can be uh, an official. I think every coach in every sport should spend a year being an official for their sport. Uh, <laughs> might, might change uh, their attitude. But um, yeah, understanding what the, what it is, what the exercise stimulus is. And because mm-hmm. you get people that um, that really don't, ha- uh, they may have a good research question, but they don't really understand what the stimulus needs to be. Hmm. 
And I, and I think that's underappreciated. Yeah. You know, if uh, if you and I were working together and 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 uh, I wanted to study distance runners, okay, I need to get on board with someone. The good news is that Kansas, uh, our distance coach, has a PhD in exercise physiology. Oh, great! But mm-hmm. I'm getting Dr. Whittlesey on board because he's the one that knows that 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 sport inside and out, and and you know he'd be able to tell me. Okay, that's not even a good training program, or that's not real, or people don't even do this. Mm-hmm. That that's one thing that I think is missing in on both sides, the people that read it, but also among some people that that do the research. Hmm. Yeah, I I remember a few times uh, in grad school where you know uh, I think it was in neuromuscular exercise physiology class with Dr. Willoughby, and he would say. <coughs> You know, like, all right, let's take a look at this study. And, uh, you know, here's it's examining the differences between this type of training modality and this type of training modality. And they're looking at, you know, this specific outcome. And based off the uh, author's conclusions, they, you know, they recommend that this is the better option. And everybody's just like, okay, cool. And then he's like, no, 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 just kidding. Let's actually look at these training programs and you tell me what the issues are with this. And then we actually look and, you know, you're comparing these two things and it's like, these people had never lift the, the people who can, who set up these, uh, these groups are like, they've never, they've never trained before because like no one, like you said, like no one would ever do that. And you're comparing that against something that's like, yeah, maybe somebody would do that if they, got it you know they photocopied a he he liked to say muscle and fiction magazine <laughs> like they he'd always say that. Was, always crack us up like you photocopy that and then you go to the gym and like boom that's your workout like yeah maybe that's good one time or maybe that's good for you know four weeks and then after that you're gonna be whatever so it's like you it's super helpful to understand both the the in the trenches knowledge like you have to know like what can people do what's going to work what's effective and and then understand like yeah is this a good way of measuring that so you kind of open the door to two two related things as you try to run a controlled study which is the goal of much research i want to i want to go in the lab and control everything sometimes you end up with training programs that are not even realistic. So I want to compare this versus that, and let's equate for volume. Well, mm-hmm. how are you calculating volume? Are you counting reps, or are you actually calculating joules of work, which means you better be measuring uh, the forces and the distances? Are you talking about mean power or velocity? How are you defining volume? Okay, that's that's one issue, but then so now I equate these two things, and because I'm making equal volume, I've got one of the programs is so uh, it's literally a whacked out program. It's like nobody do- even does this now. Mm-hmm. From a research standpoint, it was done to try to isolate a particular variable in the training program, and I'm using the weight room as an example. But you know, there's so many variables in a weight training program. You know, just. Uh, you can talk about just the uh, a single training session. You have uh, which exercises and what loads and what rest intervals and what um, 
um, how many reps or the volumes and, um, and the orders in which you do it. And then mm-hmm. now let's start putting multiple workouts together and you get into what, what model of periodization or non-periodization or just, um, and of which there are literally, if you do the math, you almost have an infinite number of ways to do it. So mm-hmm. if I try to control one variable, like controlling volume, it will absolutely affect other variables. Mm-hmm. So you end up doing some kind of crazy programs and it's like, okay, I see why they changed, why they controlled this variable, but they ended up doing using such light weights. It's ridiculous. No one goes in the weight room and does it <laughs> with healthy people, and especially yeah. with, with athletes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or they say, well, it's too heavy. You know, well, what do you mean it's too heavy? They, it's still less than 100 per, per, percent. You know, uh, they were able to do it. So there's that issue, making sure that you actually end up with a, with a realistic product you know, protocol you're following. The other mm-hmm. is who are your subjects? Mm. And a huge uh, percentage of the studies are done with untrained people. Mm-hmm. And I've been involved with tons of those studies as well. Um, because, uh, um, for example, some of the early work we did on fiber type, uh, fiber adaptations and protein expression with strength training I did with in Bob Stern's lab. And we purposely went for untrained people because we weren't sure what we'd see Let's set the stage to see if there's an adaptation. We'll find it with these folks. Mm -hmm. But at some point, um, you have to realize with untrained people, you can do almost anything. You could have the worst training program out there. In fact, we laugh. Someday we're going to do this. Maybe before I retire, we're going to hire a construction company, bring their dump truck onto our property and dump uh, a pile of rocks. And we'll give everyone work gloves and uh, industrial belt it's a weight belt and mm-hmm. steel toed shoes and we're going to lift rocks in a field and if i have beginners i'll bet my beginners make tremendous gains we just today what are we going to do move the pile over there tomorrow mm-hmm. bring it back whatever mm-hmm. but um and that's why you can work with beginners or you, you know if i'm a high school coach what a fertile group of athletes or students or people to work with because um, you can do almost anything and they will make huge gains. Mm-hmm. So now does that apply to your elite runners? you got people that have been out there training for eight years or 10. Uh, they're not beginners. Mm-hmm. And is that the right, you know, and people will extrapolate findings for, from beginners or from disease populations. And it's like, no, these aren't even real programs for, for uh, someone that, that's more advanced. Or Mm -hmm. the studies are not long enough. Mm -hmm. So I do, uh, I mean, I'm working on uh, a paper right now, and I'm looking at training studies that last four weeks. They're trying to look at muscle growth. It's like four weeks. Are you kidding me? Six weeks? Eight weeks? And there's plenty of example. Well, I shouldn't say there's not enough examples of long-term training programs. Uh, I -hmm. love this one study that went for nine months. And for the first half of the study, it was comparing two training programs and everyone was making the same gains. Hmm. And then there was a point in the middle where one group kind of leveled off and hmm. the other group continued to make gains, not wow. as rapidly. Gains mm-hmm. come slower with mm-hmm. more advanced people. And, um, and so you have to look, who, who are you training? And everyone likes to call their subjects uh, highly trained. Well, what's highly trained? Or they call them, we studied elite athletes. 
well, you were pretty good at your school or whatever, but what's elite? Some people mm-hmm. say you need to be top 10 in the world. Well, uh, good luck tracking those folks down. <laughs> and, um, and then, uh, and then if you do, and this is an issue that, uh, national training centers have to deal with, um, they get criticized if they try to publish their research because you don't have an adequate sample size. Mm. Well, cause there aren't that many people yeah. and you don't have a control group. Mm. Who's going to be a control group for, uh, you know, um, so in the sports world, there are limitations, uh, that you have to live with, and yet these are the people that you that you're actually training, and and um, so yeah, there's there's not a perfect design on, on any of that. But who your subjects are, what's the training program, mm-hmm. and is it even a realistic program? That uh, that reminded me of something that uh, Dan John said. Um, he's a very well-known strength coach and and he says especially when it comes to something novel something brand new or to someone who's never trained before like everything works for six weeks <laughs> but yeah. like but then what right like what do you do then like you you have to know how to program because you know like the whole idea is so many strength coaches go to um go to these conferences like a yearly conference or or a clinic and then you know somebody who's on the cutting edge comes up or or uh, a company that comes up with this brand new piece of equipment they're like hey you've got to work this in like you know like or you've got to try this and it's like you know i'm guilty of it i'd go home you know and if the conference is on a friday or saturday guess what my clients were doing on monday like what i just learned and yeah, they'd see some some pretty significant results. And then, you know, four weeks later, it's like, I don't know what to do next. I don't know how to progress this or I didn't really it was just something different. So, yeah, they were they were having, you know, a decent result because of that. But um, I didn't understand the research behind it. I didn't understand what I was doing. And so I think there's a there's a lot of that uh, in the industry itself and, and with the layman, like um, they have no idea what's going on most of the time. So, um, yeah. no, I agree with you. So this is, this is a tough one for a lot of people. It was, it was, it took me a while to understand it. What the hell is a null hypothesis? And I say what the hell, because it's a funny story. Uh, in grad school, we had, you know, statistics and, um, on our final, we had to, uh, based off a certain amount of data and all this stuff, we had to then at the very bottom determine whether we would accept or, or, uh, or not accept the null. And, um, I wrote, I was so over statistics at that point. And I, I wrote that I would reject the hell out of that null. And, um, actually I, I got a laugh out of the professor and, you know, got a decent grade, but, um, what is a null hypothesis? Cause I, I think there's so many people who have no idea w- what that even means. Well, you know, when you we'll go back to, uh, the beginning of our discussion, where we talked about the research question. So you've got a question that you're trying to get an answer to, or a partial answer to, or, or at least some insight on. And you have a hypothesis. What do you think will happen? I think 
that if I take this supplement, well, how about a pre-workout supplement? We, we did some stuff a few years ago on something that was just uh, laced with tons of caffeine and, I, and a lot of other things, but it cranked you up pretty, pretty seriously. <laughs> so, uh, you know, well, we have, uh, based on what we know about um, pre-workout drinks, based on what we know about caffeine, but it wasn't just caffeine. Anyways, we can we have reason to think that, yeah, muscle contractility may be enhanced. You know, as we were looking at that case, maybe it was too much, too, because you can, mm. you know, there's, there's optimal arousal and, and optimal, uh, you know, you, you don't want the jitters, you know, and that's not a scientific yeah. term. But uh, yeah, you can redline the nervous system into yeah. not being able to do a very good job of and so what, um But, you know, we had reason to say, okay, we think that um, the training sessions will be enhanced. And then the question was, will that lead to bigger uh, chronic gains over, I forget if it was an eight-week or ten-week training period? Because in theory, okay, I have a good session, but is that going to lead to where at the end of several-month training block, um, I actually am a little bit ahead? So then then you come up with – you know, the hypothesis we, we had, let's say, is that um, this one group that got the real thing versus the placebo, that they will um, they'll be a little stronger at the end. You know, everyone should be increasing because they're all doing a supervised training program. That's a I'll sneak this one in. Look carefully to see if the training and the studies was supervised or not. Or mm-hmm. did they just send people off to their fitness center? And have the person who hands out towels at the front door sign a sheet that, oh, yeah, yeah, Andy did his workout. And there are studies that do that. They just send them out or it's self-report. And mm-hmm. it's like, okay. And um, because I have actually, you know, in our lab, we at times do muscle biopsies. And I was working with a colleague once on a study. And we're getting ready to do the, the final biopsy. And I said, so how's your training gone? And they said, well, you know, I kind of upper body was good, but I kind of skipped uh, on the lower body stuff. And I'm getting ready to do a biopsy on their lower body. Uh-huh. Well, this is that's interesting to know. I mean, we analyzed it, but uh, that had to be part of our conclusion. And we had mm-hmm. to weave that into it. It's like, you know, compliance of the training program uh, wasn't there or a supplement study uh, where. Um, I'll give you your case of supplement and, um, then you find out that, uh, they're selling it, you know, mm. cause that makes pretty good money. <laughs> so what is the, what controls are being put in place to, to avoid that? You know, cause it's always going to be a challenge. Even I've been in, involved with studies where, um, we had to make sure people took their supplement mm-hmm. and it's like, we're giving you free branch chain amino acids. Why would you, well, we found out later that, um, some were spitting them out. And so we had to look under their tongue. You know, you felt like you were in a movie checking to make sure, you know, at a psychiatric <laughs> ward, are you taking your, your meds? Uh, wow. Because they didn't want to get too much. They didn't want to um, gain too much weight and get out of their weight class. It's wow. like, well, don't worry. You, that's not going to, this is not that good. Not but, a lot of calories uh, there. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but what controls are there? that are put in place to, to make sure that what's being, what you're trying to do is actually happening. Mm-hmm. But, um, so you, you know, you've got, um, 
uh, I was trying to remember where I, I was going with this because these are all important issues. But, uh, oh, the null hypothesis. Our hypothesis was that taking the pre-workout will enhance strength. The null hypothesis is there's no difference. Null, zero, not there. And so your statistics actually tell you, I got the results for this group, I got the results for this group, and they both came out the, about the same. And so you did not reject the null hypothesis. Now, my research hypothesis is this group's going to be better. Mm-hmm. Okay. And to support that, you reject the null. So we analyze it, and it's like, oh, they aren't the same. So mm-hmm. you're rejecting the null. But it's it's a, um, you know, some most research articles don't say this is the null hypothesis. They just report our hypothesis is that this will or will not have an effect. So, but the two the statistical tools allow you to either accept or reject. In this case, in my example, yes, there there was no difference. Or yeah, there is a difference, which means I I'm rejecting it. So it gets confusing because it's like kind of working at it from the other direction, and mm-hmm. yet statisticians they're like yeah 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 um, they're all <laughs> that. So <laughs> so you're you're basically you have an idea ahead of time like yeah, I think this is gonna work, but in order to limit as much of your own personal bias as possible, you're using this statistical method that says you know what between these two groups there's going to be no difference and then you run the statistical analysis and and there is a difference then you can say okay well the idea was there was no difference but actually the stats show there is a difference therefore there there is evidence that this thing actually works you know you remember the old movie jerry Maguire? Uh, it's Tom Cruise and and Cuba Gooding Jr. and oh, yeah. uh, you know and uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. says, "Show me the money, mm-hmm. show me the money." Well, this is where if you're the person that's trying to decide, should I take this supplement? In in our example, uh, show me the data because right mm-hmm. now I have no reason to think I should take this pre-workout supplement. I'm operating off the null hypothesis; these are both the same. But mm-hmm. show me the data that. Oh, let's reject that. There, there is a difference, at least within the scope of this study. For these mm-hmm. subjects doing this protocol, taking this supplement, on um, this dosage, uh, etc. Uh, different subjects, maybe not. Different training programs, maybe not. So, mm-hmm. and um, so, uh, yeah. And it, and just because it's good for that group doesn't mean it's good for everyone. Um, now, I'm not a creatine expert, but that's a great example. There are some athletes that don't want to take creatine because uh, sometimes people do put on a few pounds mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, of, of fluid retention. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I thoroughly believe creatine, very effective training modality, but I understand there's some athletes say, I don't want to carry that extra three, four, five pounds. Mm-hmm. And, um, and for their sport, it's not worth it to them. I'm like, well, that was interesting to me. That was kind of an eye opener. As a researcher, I'm like, sure, you'd want to take it. Uh, but for the practitioner, the people actually out there in the trenches, there's a, a rationale which was very real for them. That, you know, you yes. know so um, that's a tough to be, one. Happen to be sprinters, I guess. And I was like, really? Uh, yeah. But they're like, yeah, I, I just do not carry that extra five pounds uh, if that's, it's fluid weight. 
in in the world of of distance running especially but yeah track and field in general um for some reason a lot of people are averse to that and and you know i'm i'm coming from the perspective that like yeah maybe you have a few extra pounds but it's intracellular which means there's more pressure within the cell which means you can exert more force per contraction you're better at uh, thermoregulation, let's say you're a distance runner or a triathlete, like maybe that's a good thing. And if you're training with it consistently, your body's going to figure out how to normalize that weight, whether it, you know, it, it, the body wants to be as efficient as possible. And if it's, if it recognizes over time that it's more efficient with three extra pounds of, of intracellular water, like well, then it's going to keep it. And if it recognizes, you know what, this is a bad thing then it's probably going to get rid of that. So I'm kind of, I always try to play devil's advocate when it comes to creatine for, for endurance athletes. Cause I think it's amazing. I think the benefits far outweigh, uh, that specific, uh, you know, risk to performance, but, um, in a sport where the assumption is the lighter you are, the faster you'll be, it, it can be an uphill battle trying to get somebody to just, you know, give it a try. Like, yeah, but it's going to reduce muscle damage. Maybe that's a good thing for recovery. Maybe you'll be able to accumulate more volume running maybe. And then, you know, I try to list off all these things like, well, you know, it's also, you know, good for this and it's good for that. And you increase satellite cell activation and proliferation, and that's going to be good for, um, for all these other things. And, you know, it's just like, yeah, 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 but but I'm going to gain weight. It's like, okay. All right. You know what? If you don't want it, then you don't want it. So more Which for is me. a big, big thing, you know. <laughs> if you have buy-in, that's huge. And you know, I'm getting into my wife's area of the sports psychology, but the uh, the confidence, the um, you know, the the buy-in to the program, you know, the you know the uh, coach and athlete interactions, and so forth. I mean, but if you have the confidence, that will take you so far. Mm-hmm. And I love. You know, I'm a physiologist and we do biomechanical stuff. And I mean, that's all important. But uh, even if I don't have that, but, the, you know, and we've all seen the athlete that just I fully expect to do well. And, and you know, and it's like that'll take you a long ways. Now, mm-hmm. um, certainly, certainly you may not. Yeah, I don't know. There, I'm sure there's a limit to that. But uh, um, the confident person, uh, a lot to be said for that. That's for sure. So let's go into some of the more uh, common errors that uh, either in research methods or in the statistical mes- methods that um, especially in the realm of sport performance or hypertrophy or strength and conditioning research that, have, that are unfortunately probably a little more common than they should be. And a lot of times it's labeled uh, bro science let's say. So, um, let me start with growth science. Sure. Perfect. You know, I'm looking at my notes here and it's, you know, and I'll tie this in a little bit with social media, you know, social media, everyone's an expert because I got, I have a platform out there and I can say whatever I want and, and I have freedom of speech and so forth. Um, and that's true. Um, and how do you interpret that? And how do I even know who these people are? Do they have a clue and so forth? And I 
my perception is, and I'm sure there's, you'll have listeners that know more on top of it than I am, but, um, you know, there's some whacked out ideas floating around. Uh, there's extreme confidence that, look, I know the answer. Just listen to me. Okay. But that also exists on the academic side. There's plenty, and I'll throw myself in there. Lots of big egos, myself mm-hmm. included. Uh, and I wish people would just understand because I got it figured out. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I think it requires, I think, understanding the research and being able to apply it requires a certain amount of modesty and humility. Uh, and that's uh, easy for some folks and really challenging for others. Mm-hmm. Um and, um, you know, because how many how many followers do I have? Oh, that yeah. must mean I know uh, I must I must be pretty knowledgeable because, uh, look, uh, that, that says, oh, well, um, so don't get caught up in that. Maybe it's good. Maybe not. Um, so anyone and their cousin can come up with an idea and so forth. But one side says, OK, you have to put your filter on sometimes. However, you can't just throw that all out. And I would say. So much of what we do in our athletic performance lab is highly dependent on our communication with the coaches and the mm-hmm. athletes, mm-hmm. because I would say uh, I don't have any data, but probably a majority of our projects that we do in our lab are not because myself or my grad students or my colleagues come up with an idea. We're getting these ideas from the coaches and the athletes and the people that are in the trenches and someone went out and they tried something. Mm-hmm. Now, is there any data to support it? No, but we've had some success, so we're going to incorporate it. And so then the sports scientist gets criticized that we're too slow. Well, doing good research is not fast. Mm-hmm. That takes a while. By the time we figure something out, well, the people in the trenches have moved on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, it's easy for a non-researcher to say, you guys are too slow. We don't have time for sports science. You guys are too slow. On the other hand, you know, and then there's some truth to that. On the other hand, how do you know what your methods are? Are they any good? Because mm-hmm. you're taking 10 different supplements and you're experimenting with six different training methods and you're bouncing all over. You know, so what, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, so on one hand, um, I think it's important for someone in sports science to be attuned to what the, for lack of better words, what bro science is saying. Because mm-hmm. maybe there's some validity to it. And then you find out, okay, yeah, or maybe in certain circumstances or, um, yeah, here's a training method that seems to work uh, or it doesn't. Let's not waste our time. It's all voodoo or someone's just trying to make money. Mm -hmm. If you go into the history, uh, if you ever get a chance, uh, he's passed away, Dr. Terry Todd from the University of Texas and his wife, Jan, who also teaches there. They have a tremendous um, archive of strength and conditioning research, uh, the weight training, weightlifting world. And um, if you ever read any of the stuff, it's fascinating on, um, you know, what were the motivations of people to say like lifting would make you slow and uh, sluggish. Mm -hmm. And you're going back a century or more. And sometimes it was to make money. Mm -hmm. That's still an issue. Uh, I go on uh, the internet, a lot of people trying to make money. I'm going to sell you this training device or my training program and guaranteed and and it's like maybe it is true maybe not but but you still have to listen to it so I mean that's a that's a a, you kind of walk in that line there you want that information 
mm-hmm. you also have to uh, decide, okay, is there any legitimacy to it? And, and, um, and that's hard. <laughs> Take some work evaluating, yeah, yeah. evaluating claims. So um, when we had talked before, we, we were able to cover uh, just in passing a couple of the specific uh, types of errors that um, that can occur in research and and um, most of them I was completely unaware of. So if you could um, give us a a little bit of of an explanation about some of these, this would be great. So what is salami slicing? <laughs> yeah, I'm just uh, circling a few of these terms on my list, and that that's one of where where is my salami slicing thing? Well. That's not necessarily an error, but salami slicing is where you, uh, um, well, another word that sometimes uses, you milk publications off your data set. Mm -hmm. So I do a big project, and there was, in my opinion, there was a day and time where when you did a project and uh, you published it all, and you go back in some of the early literature, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, these were long manuscripts and they covered a lot of data because everything that you did went in there. Mm-hmm. Well, in my opinion, one of the things that leads to what we call salami slicing is um, academics are rewarded by numbers of publications. Hey, I had 10 pubs this last year. Hey, I had 15. Hey, I had 20. Um, there are things called impact factors and age factors and different ways of, well, how important is your research? How many times was it cited by someone? We'll come to mm-hmm. citations here in a, in, a, in a second, but, you know, did someone else reference your, your work? Um, if I do cancer research, I'm publishing in some heavy, hard-hitting, heavy-duty medical journals that have monstrous impact factors because mm-hmm. of the nature of their topic. In the exercise sports science world, the numbers are a lot smaller. And in some sub-disciplines, they're extremely small because it's a very specialized community. So impact factors were not designed to determine the quality of the research. They were designed just to have an indication of, who, you know, how much is what's getting out there. Is it having, you know, an impact? And but unfortunately, it's like you're a good researcher because you had a lot of pubs and you have a lot of research dollars. And I'm not as good a researcher because I had had half as many. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to, well, what is your research? What's it saying? So salami slicing, I can say, well, I'm going to take um, this piece of the data and I'm going to put it in this article. And then I'll take this piece of the data that's sort of related, but not exactly. And I'll make another article and I'll take this piece and put it there. This piece, put it there and there. And um, there's actually documented cases. Uh, there's one that that's uh, kind of well-known where someone got 30-some publications off the same data set and he went to different journals and so forth. And it's like, now that's an extreme. But if you're not paying attention, you can cite, yeah, there's over 30 papers that support this. No, it was um, coming off the same data set. Now, having said all that, it is absolutely appropriate to have a big study and you say, and I have done this and others too, where, okay, we have some, uh, maybe some hormonal data that is a big body literature, and this part of the study will talk about the endocrine response. Mm-hmm. And here is our performance stuff that is related, but we've got tons of, and so there are 
cases where you can legitimately um, say, look, we've, we're separating it out. We're telling mm-hmm. the reader that we're separating it out as opposed to um, we're just uh, slicing this up into little salami slices. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look closely at some authors, in my opinion, there's no way that they did as many studies as they did in, within a certain window of time. And yet they have this monstrous number of publications. And then you go back and look, and it's like you have to really read the methods carefully. This has got to be the same study. And this one's the same study. And this one, this one is men. And this one's women. And this one's kids. And this one's the, you know, something else. And this one. And, and so then, but then they cite so that's that salami slicing, mm. which brings up ethics and research. Mm-hmm. What's appropriate? And there's not a there's not a number. It's not like this is good, this is bad. But uh, self citations. Mm. Now I get to cite myself. So I cite this one and that one and that one and that one. And look, there's uh, this many studies that support it. Yeah, there's only one project that mm. actually. And mm-hmm. so that means the reader has to go back and look at the references. And most people don't. Mm-hmm. And most reviewers don't. You know, you say, well, it's in a scientific journal. Most don't go back and look at every single one to make sure that, okay, is this, this is just saying the same thing. Um, same thing too, there are some uh, authors that are notorious for writing reviews. Let's uh, have a topic and I write a review. And next year I'm gonna write another review on the same topic in a different journal. And in 10 months, I'm gonna write another review on the same topic in another journal. And wow. again, and again, and again, and again. And then I can cite six places that say the same thing. It's the same people saying mm-hmm. the same thing. And is it really an issue or did they make it one? And mm-hmm. and in my opinion, there are articles, What uh, there are papers out there that will say, Oh, some of their leading statements are such and such is a controversial area. So they're set in the stage. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading it and I'm like, I've never heard of this controversy. No, I don't know everything. <laughs> but it's like, I don't think this is controversial. Uh-huh. But you set the stage for the reviewer and the reader saying, oh, I guess it is controversial. Well, maybe mm-hmm. maybe someone did say it, but but cite where that's a controversy and mm-hmm. what they're doing is they're making a controversy. Kind of leading the witness. Yes. And and so then it's like, I don't think, um, now this is my opinion. There was a controversy cited sometime recently that um, there's a controversy that in aerobic cardiovascular endurance training um, leads to muscle hypertrophy. Hmm. And I'm like, Really? I've never heard that, <laughs> but the whole thing was written on that. And I'm like, I've never, now, I don't know, you're, you're a distance person and so forth. Uh, I'm not sure that you've ever worried about your on the track or on the course training being a problem for putting on too much mass. In fact, it's probably the opposite because it's such a catabolic activity. Yep. And so, um, you know, I, I pick on that and, and uh, not to, you know, I'm not, trying to call anyone out but it's like is this really a controversy or let's just get is it another publication let's get a few reviews out there mm-hmm. and uh, um so I've, i don't mean to cut you off but no. i've seen i've seen some of that data and those studies that show like 
uh, like endurance running increased, uh, gastrocnemius cross-sectional area. It's like someone who's never run before, and it was like a four-week study. Because it just it doesn't happen. Like, it's just yeah. like... And people who try to cite it, like, oh, well, I don't need... Uh, I don't, I don't need to lift weights if I'm a distance runner because my muscles are going to get bigger just from running. And I'm like, you have like, let's take a measuring tape and let's measure your calves right now. Let's measure your quads right now. Like they're the same as your wrists and your forearms. Like <laughs> this is not good, man. Like you should probably do some lifting here. Um, it's, it's, but yeah, I've seen that stuff, but uh, kind of alluding back to what we talked about before, like, What's the length of the study? Who who are the subjects? Like yep. you're picking you're picking people who anything's gonna work for six weeks. Like you give them a brand new stimulus, yeah, their body's gonna respond by becoming more efficient. And immediate the immediate response for the body to become more efficient is to improve the the quality and function of those muscles. And in the short term, that meant they were gonna get bigger. But you know, and, and related to that is there is a ton and and arguably much more research out there that deals with uh, rehab and therapy and activities of daily living and general health and fitness where that's absolutely appropriate. Mm-hmm. And um, if I'm a physical therapist and I know that in, well, this is very real. I'll have a patient who now has been either in a cast or not been able to has been immobile, and mm-hmm. now uh, they have atrophy of the gastrocnemia, or you know the 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 the, the triceps surrey muscles, and um, and absolutely. So you start being locomotive now, and there will be hypertrophy because you're you've gone from one level of uh, activity to something new. Mm-hmm. Can I take that and apply that to my cross country team? No, because I mean it's a um, now, is that helpful to know? Sure. Is that, though, going to change the program you're writing for, for your athletes? Probably not, because, because you know what the training stimulus is and the population is and the purpose. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's where you come back to um, you know, understanding, you know, the stimulus. And, you know, one other thing, uh, you got me on a roll here, but... Um, <laughs> One thing too is I love I love reviews because they when they're well done they can pull together so much information and they mm-hmm. don't just sit there and say here was study one and they saw this here was study two and they saw that here was study three I can I can go print off a stack and I can you know go through through that what I love is when they okay let's synthesize this. Mm-hmm. So what does this mean? You know, we're seeing this and this data suggests this and they they try to, you know, weave, weave the story. And um, and so those can be so helpful. And one meth, you know, some things that are emerging now, they've been around for, for, for many years. Very effective ways of doing reviews are meta analyses and what are called systematic reviews. Mm-hmm. Now, I've read things where they say these are much more valid reviews because you don't bring your bias in. You know, you're not skipping uh, important literature just to only talk about the research that supports your idea. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if you write a good review, one, you should present everything, not just cherry pick 
the stuff that supports your idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you don't do that, then that, in my opinion, is an error as a writer of one of those. So in theory, I do a systematic review. I go in and I have a very, I look for certain terms and, you know, anyone who's done a term paper for class, you go and you go to one of the search engines, you type in the keywords and I get all kinds of research. But everyone who's done that knows what words I type in is going to really change my what I get. Mm -hmm. So these these systematic analysis uh, uh, reviews and meta analyses are only as good as the terms that you use to search. Mm -hmm. And it's not unusual that you find that there's a quite a bit of the literature that was left out because they just look for a handful of words and they get all these results, but then they weed out ones that are not closely related. But in my experience, you also miss some stuff that is out there. And so then, um, you know, for example, I'm, I'm involved in working on a paper where there's a meta-analysis out there that has eight papers. Now, first of all, if you're doing a meta-analysis, that's not very many. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you might as well just write a regular review. You don't need a meta-analysis if there's only eight valid papers. Uh, at my last count, we're up to over 100 references that are relevant to the topic, but wow. they didn't have the right keywords. Mm. You know, and it's kind of like, I think it's very easy to miss it because it becomes so mechanized. And so, well, I put in these words, this is what we got, and we see the number, and it went up, and so it has an effect, as opposed to, well, let's sit down and kind of think this thing through a little bit. Now, that being said, meta-analyses, systematic reviews are tremendous tools, but the reader has to also look, look carefully. Is it a meta-analysis that doesn't have very many out there, or uh, is it as thorough and complete as it could be? And there are a lot of work, but mm -hmm. um, but it's uh, um, you have to ultimately be the person that reads it and decides, okay, um, where do I put this on my scale? Of uh, uh, is it is it thorough enough, and is it helpful information, and what where does it fit in? And uh, um, so it's just something that. Um, the reader has to has to be aware of it's it's easy to say well uh, uh, a meta analysis gives you a final number mm -hmm. good bad and it's like well it may not be that simple hmm. gotcha so um, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the manner or the specific journal of publication how does that fit into um, into the let's say the weight or quality of of a study yeah um you know there are uh journals that are highly respected high impact uh you know sometimes journals have um very specific uh niche in the scientific literature, where they really have a, a specialized focus. Some are much more general. Some are, are very specialized. Um, and so that is, uh, that's something to consider. Um, and every journal has available somewhere, and I don't know if it's available publicly or not. I, I'm on editorial board for, uh, for some journals. And so uh, as a reviewer and editor, I get to see the data where, okay, what is our acceptance rate? 
So we have X number of articles that get submitted um, and your very prestigious journals have very low acceptance rates, mm -hmm. which is kind of discouraging as a researcher. So you reject 90% of what gets submitted. Um, and uh, so there may be some really good stuff out there, but I can't get it into this journal. Mm -hmm. but, um, but there's tiers at different, different levels. Um, I heard an interesting talk a while back from three Nobel laureates. And uh, one of them was, uh, um, I forget his name, Peter, someone, he was uh, at, worked at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis when, when I lived there. So, um, but he was giving an interview with two other Nobel winners. So these guys are, they, you know, they don't have to prove themselves to anyone yeah. on anything. Yeah. And um, they were talking about their recommendation to researchers was don't worry as much about um, where you go with your publication, get it out there. He mm -hmm. says so many people, I'm, I'm going to try to go here and it gets rejected or the reviewers want changes made. So you make some changes and, uh, and by the, but then you end up having to go to a different journal and, and it may take forever to get it out and your wheels are spinning. And then sometimes you end up with a final product, not really what you wanted is, you know, they're saying, just get it out there so mm -hmm. it can be cited. Now, if you've won a Nobel Prize, you, you can look at them and say, well, you've won a Nobel Prize. You can go publish wherever you want. Yeah. Where if I'm a, a young faculty member, uh, I need to establish myself and I need to go to a good place. And in some places as a as a researcher, you're rewarded for going to higher tier journals. Mm -hmm. So there, there's that to be considered. There are also journals and I'm going to put some some of this as my opinion. There are a ton of journals because every single day, and I'm not the only one, I get tons of emails. Dear Dr. Blank, you know, they don't even know who I am. We read your <laughs> article and it's on something. And we want you to publish in our journal, most esteemed person, so on. And so there are a ton of new journals out there. They are all over the place. Um, they'd have no idea what I do. They just want an article and they want, and they charge, they have page charges. So they're not, they're for profit entity. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the publication rate or the acceptance rate is for these journals. Cause, uh, I have personally talked to people that said they submitted it and it immediately got accepted and it was out. Wow. Cause, uh, once, uh, when they sent the money, bing. So is it really reviewed and who's reviewing it? Mm -hmm. And sometimes you'll read some uh, um, articles that this article shouldn't even be at this journal. This does, has nothing to do with what the title of the journal is about, but they're going there <laughs> and it will get out there. Mm -hmm. It'll get published. So then it's like, is it, what's the quality of the research and what's the quality of the review? Mm -hmm. Now I'll give an example. This week, I actually got asked to review an article, and none of you, no one that will listen to this will have any involvement, because it was about new sensors, development of a new sensor for braking torque in automobiles. Hmm. So this is an automotive engineering technology thing. <laughs> I got asked for that. You know, I'm like, what am I doing? Why did they even ask me? Mm -hmm. You know, somewhere they, they got on and it's like, uh, um, it makes no sense. 
Yeah. And, you know, and, and yet I'm being asked to do it. So if I say, yeah, and I say, great, go ahead and publish it. That's not a valid review because I don't know the topic. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I have a feeling that there are, in my opinion, there are journals that if I'm, if I'm willing to pay, it will get in. Wow. Some of them are very prominent, very highly visible. Mm-hmm. But it's also then when you go back, and this gets to another issue, you go back and you carefully read what was done read the methods and this is uh, laborious but i'm not sure that the methods were really that appropriate mm-hmm. and um because so uh, and that's not just these journals but um you know what are what are the methods are did were the proper methods e- even used and it's easy mm-hmm. to kind of glaze through the methods real quick it's like yeah 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 but it's like uh, i'm not even sure that was that was appropriate or an appropriate interpretation Mm-hmm. So it's, um, you know, so it'd be easy to say peer review process is not very good. Now, I don't buy that at all. Peer reviewed process is is good. And I, I'm not a fan of the non-peer review. Put it out there and let everyone else review it. Well, that means, you know, my plumber could review it. Anyone that has an opinion can review it, whether they know anything or not. And, that, yeah. and that's problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... Um, and these are evolving challenges, but not every journal, uh, you know, some have really good reputations. And, you know, I go down and I look at who's on the editorial board. Mm-hmm. You know, are these people who actually know the topic, which mm-hmm. is also as you read research, what is this lab known for? Is this paper on something? They're not even trained in this area. Mm-hmm. I, I look at their publication list. You know, they're dabbling outside the area, which doesn't mean it's bad research. But but my guard is up. The caution mm-hmm. flag is up. Yeah. You, know, if, uh, you would uh, you know you should not be reading my articles on automotive sensors for braking. Because <laughs> uh, I mean I, I know nothing. And yet yeah. Uh, um, yeah so I I don't know. It's a it's a conundrum coming and going. For sure, that's hilarious. Um. So to kind of sum everything up because we've been we're going a little over an hour now hour 20 or so um how how do you set up a research study to prevent most of these issues from from becoming actual issues like how do we how do we better design the control into the study so that we limit bias and we limit um any sort of uh, issues with our conclusions? You know, just a couple kind of kind of closing thoughts. Um, you know, designing a study, you know, is the fundamentals of research design, which most students will take a class in. Um, and you do your best to control as many extraneous factors as possible. I doubt that there's ever been a perfect study designed ever. Mm-hmm. So there will be limitations. Your goal is to have them, to, to recognize the limitations of them. So you interpret it accordingly. And to minimize, you know, the number and the size or the magnitude of the limitation. And, um, 
and then realize that your study is only going to, you know, your results apply within the scope of the study. If I'm looking at untrained people, then my results apply to, to that population. Uh, now, might I be able to extrapolate it to an athletic population, for example? You might, but there's that caution flag. It's like, we, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you try to minimize the number of, of limitations and hopefully there's no fatal flaw. And you recognize and acknowledge the ones that are there. And um, and maybe you don't support your your research hypothesis. That's okay. And, you know, that's an area that people have, have brought up that, um, you know, you didn't have any statistically significant results. Well, that's still important to know. Mm-hmm. And um, it's not exciting necessarily. I mean, I, it could be, but it's like I didn't discover anything new. It's kind of like, no, this was a bust. No, it's not a bust. It means I'm not going to spin my wheels and waste my time going down this direction uh, uh, further. Or mm-hmm. I need to redesign my study and control for something I wasn't able to before. Mm-hmm. I think another thing in summary is it's easy to oversimplify. We did a study. We saw no effect. This doesn't work. And there are plenty of examples out there where people say, uh, there's no relationship between muscle size and strength. And they cite a study. It's like, well, I can cite some of my work that saw increased strength but no change in muscle size. That doesn't mean that there's no relation. You know, it's kind of like black or white, yes or no, up or down, good or bad. It's it's not like that. Mm-hmm. It'd be like saying this is the training program you should have your athletes use, not this one. Good, bad. Well. Um, it, it, it's usually not that simple. And, and so we, we're complex systems. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, you know, you have to understand that it's multifaceted. We can get a little bit of insight, but um, people love to oversimplify. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and everyone looks, likes to be critical. You know, everyone's an armchair quarterback. Uh, why didn't they call this play in the Super Bowl? Well, same thing. Your research is terrible because I, I can be critical of this and this and this. And it's like, fine. So how is your research on that topic? Mm-hmm. And, well, we don't do research on the topic. It's mm. like, okay. uh, and there's plenty of, of that, too. So it's kind of like maybe that's a legitimate critique, but I want to see where, uh, okay, how are, how are you fixing it? Mm-hmm. You know, if, this, if you're an expert on that, then obviously you must be doing something in this area. No, I'm oversimplifying this, too. but um, <laughs> but it's uh, um, it's real easy to be um, to be critical, and I I'm as guilty of it as, as the next. But uh, there are some people if you look down their publication list, that's all they do: letters to the editor and critiques of uh, you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong and you're wrong. Mm-hmm. And um, it's like, well, uh, they bring up some good points sometimes. But yeah, it's hard. To, it makes it challenging to, to read and interpret. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if there's no room for nuance, then uh, it's it's probably a whole lot harder to actually progress. Um, and it, the thing about nuance is that it takes time and that it, it takes energy, and you gotta you gotta figure out what the data actually says. And that's time consuming and can, yeah. Uh, 
can require some blood, sweat, and tears. Well, and I, I don't want anyone, if anyone's listened this, this far, I don't want them to take, I don't want the take-home message to be like, wow, th- this is a, a mess out there. Uh, but the take-home message should be, you really have to uh, remember that you do know exercise. Mm-hmm. And you should know programming and periodization or training programs or proper sport technique or proper exercise methods. And mm-hmm. how do I properly evaluate it? What are the types of tests and so forth? And, um, and lots of times you have to read it carefully. You can't just look at the title and you can't just read the abstract. Now, that's the first step. But you, you really, OK, there's more to it than that. And mm-hmm. uh, maybe, uh, you know, I subscribe to some online services that provide uh, research information. They kind of synthesize. Mm-hmm. But I still have to kind of look and say, OK, yeah. Are they are they on? Do I do I agree with their evaluation or mm-hmm. not? And, uh, yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot of abstract experts on yes. Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and it's yeah. A lot of people make a lot of money talking about abstracts and then like yeah, but they don't they have not read the study. They're just looking at you know yeah. a tiny bit. Uh, a snapshot, a thumbnail of, so of then everything the challenge, the challenge for the sports scientist is to effectively communicate. And that doesn't happen enough, you mm-hmm. know, I think, because, uh, um, um, I, I mean, it, it's hard to wear multiple hats. But in the mm-hmm. sport and exercise science world, you have to be able to uh, bridge that gap. You have to be able to talk to the coach and the trainer and the therapist. But I also have to be able to talk to the biologist or the physiologist or the chemist and the biomechanist have to be, you know, and so um, when that's done, that's, that, that can be really cool. For sure. Well, that's, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, my entire goal of doing this podcast was to communicate with uh, as many people in all the various aspects of of sport performance and rehab and nutrition and research and and um, I'm not an expert in all of those things. I wish I could be, but I it's physically impossible. It's mentally impossible. But um, if I have uh, these networks and these connections and rapport with people who are experts in all of those areas, then it's a whole lot easier for me to answer questions that I have so that I can be as effective as possible with my clients and with my athletes. Um, if there's something I don't know, um, sometimes I don't even know where to begin to look, but I might know somebody who's, you know, who deals with that on a daily basis. And, you know, the better we are at, at, like you said, communicating, not only the message, but communicating with other people, uh, within the industry, the, you know, the better off everyone is. So, yeah. Um, so how can people follow you? How can people uh, stay up to date on the work that, that you're doing and the research that you're publishing? Um, well, you know, one, you can certainly go to like PubMed or Sport Discus and, you know, uh, look for AC Fry. That's F-R-Y, no E. As simple a name as it is, I have to spell it. But um, uh, so you can you can see my, my, my uh, you know, the the peer-reviewed publications. Uh, my lab, the Jayhawk Athletic Performance Lab, has uh, uh, 
a Twitter and a Facebook and, and Instagram sites. And I should have them in front of me, but because uh, uh, they're they're all slightly different. But it's a uh, um, but if you if you find it, uh, we try to post some every couple times a week. And uh, we're in the mm-hmm. process of uh, developing our advisory board, which is not sports scientists. It's coaches. Hmm. We want people that are going to hold our feet to the fire. And um, is this, um, you know, are, are we giving you are we doing projects and giving you helpful information because you guys are the coaches and the ones that have worked with these sports. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also uh, we've gotten a lot of good ideas from people. So now we're, we're in the process of over the next few weeks, we'll be announcing the beginning of our advisory board. In fact, later today, we'll, I'll be posting our, our first member. So that's kind of exciting because uh, we've got some good people and, and um, uh, some of them really know science. Some of them, uh, really know their sport and mm. have, uh, you know, over 40 years of experience. Wow. Who am I to argue with someone who has <laughs> competed, uh, and, and, you know, just a whole career, almost half a century in their yeah. sport. Yeah. Okay. I think you know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, so that's awesome. Well, I'll, I'll include uh, Instagram and Twitter and, and Facebook stuff in the show description so everybody can have Perfect. access That's to that. Right. So um, I, I like to give all my guests um, just a way to kind of close things out. Um, it can be uh, related to the topic that we discussed. It can be completely unrelated. What is something uh, – that you think is extremely important or vital for everybody watching or listening to hear? You know, uh, that's a great question, man. It's funny. Something came right, right to mind. Um, and my students have heard me say this, but, uh, our work with sport performance, if you're into sports and athletics, okay, it resonates with you, but there's a lot of people that are like, well, um, you could be doing work on, on a lot of different areas that can enhance health and fitness or diseases and so forth. I really am a strong uh, advocate of, of uh, from two perspectives. I think this is important. A person's experience in sport is something they'll take with them for their life. Mm-hmm. So is there some way, whether it's training methods or uh, strategies or, uh, and I'll throw what my wife does in uh, the motivational environment that, that a coach or trainer or therapist or teacher or supervisor can create to enhance that experience, that is huge. I'd love mm-hmm. for everyone to perform as well as possible, but um, know that they didn't, uh, they didn't look back and say, gee, I wish I had just known something different. Uh, maybe I could have performed better. Or you'd love everyone to, to reach their, their potential. Another piece of that, though, too, is I think uh, the analogy I like to use is the auto industry. So I drive my family van or I've got a pickup truck that I haul things around in and we've got a couple sedans and so forth. Um, but you've got Formula One racers and NASCAR and dragsters and all these high performance vehicles mm-hmm. that use cutting edge technology. And boy, can they perform that technology will trickle down to the family van that I drive. Mm. So if we can take some of the things we learn about, what about optimum high level performance? Mm. 
like athletes. It's not the only place that happens, but that's a great place. Mm-hmm. There will be technologies and methods and evaluations and tests uh, and, and training and so forth and rehab methods that will trickle down to activities of daily living and, you know, to the general population. Mm-hmm. Now, that takes a little while. It won't come directly from me, but it, it build, it's part of the foundation. So I think I think that sometimes people uh, fail to realize that, yeah, some of these things are, are going to be helpful. And it works the other way, too. Sometimes uh, it works the other way. But um, but that's what's kind of fun about this whole this whole field. Yeah, no, I I agree. It's it can be sometimes difficult to. Uh, to. There's times where I feel like, am I making the most difference? Like, I want to I want to think that I'm helping people. And it's like, yeah, I'm just helping. You know, sometimes I'm just, I'm just helping kids play a sport like what impact am I actually having and then you know there's times where um you know a kid that I worked with you know 10 years ago is like hey by the way you know I'll I'll run into him on the street and they're like hey by the way you know this one thing you said motivated me to do this or and it it completely unrelated to to sport you know maybe it was something that I said um you know about you know, prioritizing their academics or just like showing an interest in them, made making them feel worthwhile. Um, you know, I can, I can have a huge impact on people. And sometimes, uh, assuming that, you know, we're just working, you know, on something as insignificant as sport, like, yeah, but sport is the universal language and it connects everybody, the entire world. And, uh, and, we can have a huge impact on people's lives. So I think that's extremely important for everyone to remember. And um, so, yeah, Dr. Fry, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This has been uh, extremely enlightening, um, really fun conversation. I appreciate your time. And I know, I know everybody watching and listening um, has picked up a few nuggets of knowledge and, uh, and yeah, so thank you again. Well, thank for, you for, for having this. me on. Uh, it's fun talking shop. Yes, it really is. Um, even stuff like statistics, which is everybody knows boring and stupid and, and worth worthless. But uh, no, I, I joke. Um, Why? Well, I, uh, I hope to have you on again in the future and we can discuss more fun things. And uh, yeah, we will uh, we'll cross that bridge down the road. Excellent. Thank you very much. Awesome. All righty. All thanks for watching and listening. Stay tuned to next week. Uh, or, yeah, stay tuned for our episode next week. All right, y'all. Adios.